0: You're listening to a podcast from the Trinity Longroom Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Hello, everyone. And you're very welcome to today's medical humanities seminar. So very welcome to everyone in the room and very welcome to all our um, attendees online. And of course, a special welcome to Dr. Dr. Rebecca, who I'll introduce in a minute. Rebecca, it's it's 10 o'clock at night um, in in Sydney. So um, thank you very much for... Joining us at this late hour, the, the wonders of technology uh, allow us to communicate in this way. So, look, we're really looking forward to to um, hearing what you have to say. Um, certainly, I'm, as we were discussing a minute ago, I'm, I'm very impressed by your work and I'm a fan of, of uh, some of your, your previous research pieces um, around the built environment and its impact on well being and so on. So, you know, re- really excited about that. So, I'll, I'll introduce you, Rebecca, and then you can. Then you can take it from there. So, um, Dr. Rebecca Mugatta, PhD, is a senior lecturer at the School of Medicine, Design and Planning, the University of Sydney in Australia. She is also an Australian Research Council DECRA, which is Discovery Early Career Researcher Award Research Fellow, who's currently funded to investigate the relationship of palliative care facilities to patient, family, and staff wellbeing. Following a decade of architectural practice, Um, within New Zealand, Rebecca completed her PhD at the Victoria University of Wellington, followed by a postdoc at the University of Melbourne. She joined the University of Sydney in 2022. (laughs) Rebecca's research investigates the relationship of the environment to wellbeing. How do healthcare environments make people feel? How can they best support staff in the delivery of healthcare? And once we have this research, how can it be successfully How can it be successfully translated into practice? So in this talk, Rebecca will discuss the different theoretical frameworks being used to understand how the built environment impacts on well-being and drawing upon examples of her own work across various paediatric, palliative and mental health care settings. So with that, Rebecca, it's my pleasure to hand it over to you. Thank you very
1: much. So this evening, I am joining you from the land of the Gettigal people of the or a Nation um, and I would like to start by paying my respects and acknowledging those who have cared and continue to care for country. So as an architect and someone who grew up in New Zealand with First Nations knowledge from that place, country is a rich and important concept and it's certainly pertinent to my work um, in terms of the connections that we form to places and how that impacts our health and more broadly our reliance on the health of our planet to continue to sustain us. So the title of my talk is Environment is Medicine, question mark. So I've been investigating the relationship of design to well-being for about a decade now, starting with my PhD on psychiatric hospitals, which spanned the mid-19th century to the mid-20th century. And my interest in these institutional buildings was sparked when I stumbled upon the most seductive idea, that in the 19th century, those who worked with the mentally ill believed that if you could get the design of the building and the landscape right, then this presented the best hope of restoring a patient's prior state of sanity. Of course, we know that none of this went according to plan, and that starting out with the best of intentions is no guarantee of success. But I didn't start with these slides merely to reminisce about my PhD, but rather because we're now seeing those same ideas about the curative potential of architecture and landscape cycle back around. Now, of course, we understand that a building cannot cure you, but contemporary research confirms that there was something in those 19th century ideas. The ways in which we design our built environment does impact our health and wellbeing, for better or for worse. And you'll likely have heard of this paper, which is Ulrich's view from a window study. And this is considered to be the foundational piece of research in the burgeoning field of evidence-based design. It suggested that having a view to nature can speed up a patient's recovery from surgery. So many people um, believe that I study hospitals, but I would say that I study care environments and there is a difference there. The distinction is the lens through which I study these healthcare spaces. So my focus is on the experience of those being cared for, um, and how the architecture supports the delivery and the expression of that care. So to give you a quick overview of the kinds of work I've done, um, I had a postdoctoral research fellowship with this team at the University of Melbourne, where we investigated the design of contemporary children's hospitals. In 2017, I was part of a team commissioned to create a research-led feasibility study for Very Special Kids, which is a 12-bed children's hospice in Melbourne, Um, and construction on that project began last year, which is pretty exciting. In 2018, I was part of another team, this time commissioned to understand what international best practice looks like. In the design of contemporary forensic mental hospitals. And our research contributed directly to the redevelopment of an 82-bed secure facility in Melbourne, which is shown in this image. Uh, most recently, I had a three-year Australian government research fellowship to look at how we can better design adult palliative care facilities. So that's a bit of a, ba- a bit of background. Um, and here's a roadmap for what you can expect from today's presentation. So I'll discuss the various ways that the built environment impacts well-being, and the different theoretical frameworks being used to understand this. Then I'll talk about how my approach to understanding this relationship differs from some of the other work in the field. And throughout, I'll draw on examples of things that I've learned across the various projects I just introduced. So by the end of this lecture, I hope you'll have a better understanding of the ways that the built environment can contribute to well-being. So if I put it in the simplest of terms, what my research really looks at is the perception and use of healthcare spaces. How do healthcare environments make people feel? And how can the built environment best support staff in their delivery of patient care? Because a lot of this research occurs in the healthcare space, that second question needs little justification We know that there's an aging population and an aging healthcare workforce. So if we can find ways to use design to help with things like nursing efficiencies or patient safety, um, then you can bet that hospital administrators and government funding agencies will want to know about that. That first question though, is a little bit trickier because when we're talking about hospitals, which are places where mistakes in design and construction can and occasionally do result in life and death outcomes, the idea of how people feel is something that can quite easily slip down that priority list. So let me explain why it's more important than you might first imagine. How healthcare spaces look and feel contributes to patient anxiety, and that anxiety impacts wellbeing. And here amusing wellbeing is a kind of catch-all for things like decreased need for painkillers, improved recovery times, And even the willingness to seek hospital care in the first place, which becomes particularly important in settings like oncology, mental health and palliative care. So in the context of palliative care, um, we've even found that things like uncomfortable furniture, cramped and stuffy rooms can sometimes deter family members from visiting as often as they otherwise would. causes them to cut short their visits. So these are the things that family members told us when we interviewed them on that recent project. So here we're talking about measures of well-being that are almost impossible to accurately quantify, yet we know that grief and our ability to process grief is complicated by feelings of guilt. Um, You know, the Perhaps you should have stayed longer or had those important conversations. So when people are telling us that the environment itself is acting as a deterrent to spending that quality time together, that really deserves our attention. So there are three ways that we know the built environment can influence well-being, and aesthetics is one of those. Now, we could talk about aesthetics in terms of the atmospheres um, that architects create in order to influence and emotional response. And it's kind of intuitive that atmosphere designed to elicit feelings of comfort will support well-being, while those that appear overly institutional or impersonal probably won't. And if I come back to this slide, it really illustrates the crux of this issue. Hospital corridors are not unwelcoming by necessity. They are the result of design, of a multitude of decisions converging about window placement, materials, paint colors, signage, whether or not we provide a place for people to sit down. And there's no unwritten rule that dictates we must have hospital corridors that look like the one on the left. But what we do have is a whole system of expectations, codes and regulations and procurement processes that make it very hard, although not wholly impossible as the opposing image makes clear. For designers and hospital administrators, to push back against what we see on the left. So a lot of the research that I do is to illustrate the value of that pushing back and also to say, here are some strategies that other architects have used to navigate those obstacles to get better design outcomes. So there's a lot of research out there that points to the fact that aesthetics matter. Um, Where hospital environments feel worn or cluttered, patients and families can perceive that Because staff don't appear concerned about the state of the environment, they imagine this somehow translates into a corresponding lack of care for them. It's worth noting that my own experience here confirms the opposite. Across several hospital environments, I've watched staff deliver exceptional care um, in spite of, and I think sometimes because of, a perceived need to compensate for some pretty ordinary hospital environments. But none of this solves the problem that if a patient or family member is anticipating substandard care, then that will impact their level of anxiety, and anxiety can hinder healing. So the second way that the environment can influence well-being is spatial proximities, and this refers to the relationship of one space to another. So within care environments, maintaining physical uh, physical and visual connections between spaces can enhance the safe supervision of those being cared for and increase the perception of support between staff. But spatial proximities can also positively influence patient well-being. For example, within the palliative care environment shown here, the architects use those proximities to solve a pressing problem, which is how to balance the need for privacy for patients with the benefits of providing social support. So, the administrator of that hospice told us that these spatial proximities mean that when the patient is in bed, they aren't closed off. They can see us walking up and down, they can hear what's going on outside, they feel like there's people not too far away from them. And they pointed out this is quite important for patients who might not have a lot of visitors. They also told us that with this spatial layout, you've got families supporting other families, and patients supporting each other, without putting anything in place for that to work, it comes naturally. Now we know that it's not coming naturally, that it's actually occurring as a direct benefit of thoughtful design. Now I use a pretty, uh, sorry, the third way that the built environment can support well-being is via the affordances that a space provides. Now, I use a pretty broad definition when it comes to talking about affordances, um, which disciples of Gibson's affordance theory may take objection to. But I tend to use the term to describe the opportunities that certain spaces provide based on the amenities they contain. So a simple way of thinking about this is what a space allows access to. This may include natural features such as sunlight, fresh air, views or green space. What a space contains, furniture, a movie screen play equipment, but also the way that certain elements used to construct a space extend certain invitations. Um, And examples of the latter might include screens that offer more privacy, so people uh, feel more comfortable having intimate conversations, or the fact that a carpeted floor provides a more inviting play surface than a vinyl floor might do. So taking a look at some of those examples in practice, at Melbourne's Royal Children's Hospital... A nature view is an example of something a space allows access to. This climbable sculpture is an example of something a space might contain. Um, And shifting to a different typology, the seating alcove in a palliative care facility provides an example of how the elements used to construct that space can invite things to happen. So in this case, it's providing space for intimate conversations to take place within that larger public space, or for someone to retreat from that space and just take a quiet moment. So in terms of how these elements contribute to well-being, here's what patients told us about these features when we asked. A patient age 15 said this about the nature view. I like the window because it's bright and sunny and makes you forget all about being in hospital and being poked and prodded with needles. Regarding the sculpture, A patient age 12 said, it's like a jungle you want to climb up, like climbing up and sliding down. It's not really a slide, but you can turn it into one. Looking at aesthetics from an adult perspective, we showed palliative care patients a range of photographs of different palliative care settings from around the world. And in response to this photograph, one patient told us, that's inviting, it's very homely. You would walk in there and think, oh, it's nice. It's not like a hospital. It's comforting. It's not daunting. It's not like you walk in there and think, oh, where are they taking me? This comment speaks to the sort of architectural baggage that we can often bring to healthcare spaces, but that it's actually not that difficult to displace. So things like a climbable sculpture or an interior that looks much less hospital-like than a patient might be expecting. These quite simple architectural moves can elicit a positive sense of surprise and that can reframe our perceptions and expectations. What all of this tells us is that while architecture may not be capable of healing, it does act to support or obstruct the therapeutic process and that happens via the environment's impact on a patient's psychological state, its influence on patterns of socialization, communication and collaboration, and the physical affordances or limitations of that environment, that is, the types of activities it enables or deters. Now let's zoom out a little bit and talk about the various theoretical frameworks that researchers are using to explain these environmental influences and their corresponding impacts on well-being. So there's biophilic design, eudemonic design, trauma-informed design, the PERMA framework, salutogenic design, SHEDS, which stands for Supportive Health Environments Design. And here I'm just listing the big ones. So the thing I find challenging about many of these frameworks is that they often come from non-spatial disciplines, and the three on this slide come from psychology. What that means is that a few of them come with a ready-made set of design recommendations for how to achieve the values they set out. And while that's one of the frustrating things about this field, it also makes it really interesting from a design research perspective. So it's for this reason that my research is often looking at what architects are doing to make these ideas concrete and tangible, because for all of the theory behind it, it is that concrete, tangible, built outcome that is the thing that mediates our experiences of healthcare spaces and the healing that goes on within them. So the climbable sculpture at RCH is a great example of architectural innovation and in support of well-being because the architects didn't read about this in any academic journal. They simply thought about what kids like to do. Kids love to climb on stuff, especially stuff that's not overtly communicating, hey, there, I'm a climbing frame. So they said, why don't we make the artwork climbable? In doing so, they literally reset expectations, right? This this rainbow-colored creature communicates in a way that kids really seem to pick up on that this is no ordinary hospital, that this is a space where you might actually have some fun and your visit might not be as rubbish as you're expecting it to be. Because Creature turned out to be such an important factor for well-being, we've written about this role of, we've written quite a bit about the role of the sculpture, but also about a number of other innovative elements that work together to reframe those expectations and ultimately support a more positive engagement with this hospital. But returning to this problem of a lack of clear recommendations for designers, salutogenic design, for example, suggests that hospital environments should be psychosocially supportive. Now, that sounds great. Why wouldn't you want to achieve that? But imagine for a minute that you were an architect and you've been tasked with designing a psychosocially supportive environment. Spoiler, there aren't too many guidelines about exactly how to do this. So one of the earliest papers I wrote in coming to this field aimed to unpack what this meant in terms of the actual physical spaces you would need to provide to support that. And I basically sat down and said, okay, well, here's all the research we can find from health and sociology that establishes how useful social support is, in this case, relative to the well-being of paediatric patients and their parents. And here's all the research I can find from environmental psychology that shows how the various ways we might plan an environment can support or obstruct social contact and the formation of friendships. Now, that research didn't come from healthcare. Instead, I had to extract it from the early environmental psychology literature that looked at high-density living environments, so housing estates and student accommodation. But you can draw a lot of parallels between the lack of control you have over your space in those high-density living environments and in the experience of temporarily occupying a hospital. So if we put those two bodies of knowledge together, then it starts to provide some clues about the things architects might look to provide if they're really serious about a psychosocially supportive healthcare space. What still surprises me is that this term was floating around as a key aspiration for hospital design for almost two decades before I undertook this exercise to understand what those spatial implications might be. So this was in the context of a raft of studies about, you know, which paint color makes people feel calmer or what kind of lighting is most suitable in a resuscitation scenario. So in the midst of these tightly targeted studies, the really big ideas about how we should be designing for well-being were sort of left untouched by academic research, uh, researchers. And the architects were expected to just figure that out. Um, in a lot of cases they did, and they did so very well. So one of the obvious but nonetheless successful strategies is clustering patient rooms around a central social space that also contains a nursing station so that patients feel like they're part of the community and you know we first began to see that in the pediatric hospital environment and now we're seeing it across a range of typologies including mental health and the palliative care facility I showed. At RCH the visibility of other kids was enhanced and what I mean by that is that the architects created a number of destination play spaces and distractions. And these are visible from all of the key public areas within their hospital. So even if patients don't feel well enough to engage in play, they can see it happening all around them. And that gives the impression that there are opportunities for them to make friends as soon as they feel well enough to do so. So what we know from the psychology literature is that for children and young people, the perception that friendship is available can deliver wellbeing benefits without that friendship even being pursued. So for families, obviously kitchenettes and lounge areas on wards can support the the formation of those really useful peer relationships when your child is sick. However, Our research also revealed that simply providing those spaces aren't enough. So it seems adults are slightly more difficult to please. Um, And it really comes down to the quality of that space. So the atmosphere, the light, the size of the space, how comfortable the furniture is, and even the proximity of that space to the patient's room. So all of that impacts whether or not people will feel comfortable using it. And if they don't feel comfortable, those spaces tend to sit empty. So we saw this in our research in pediatric hospitals, but it also came through in our palliative care research. So one of the architects we interviewed told us that they visited a hospice that had the most beautiful family room. It had a gorgeous view out to the garden. It was everything that you would want to provide, but it was around two corners. So it's the spatial proximity thing again. It was physically very close to the ward, but none of the families would use it. Instead, people would move chairs and cushions into the hallway outside of the patient rooms and sit there. So what the psychotech said to us is, psychologically, if you can't hear your mum calling, you will not go around two corners. You won't go through a closed door. So this idea of linking the theory to actual spaces and to the size and atmosphere and materiality of those spaces isn't rocket science, but for some reason a lot of the research about how the environment can support well-being often forgets to talk about those actual physical attributes. And this is important because while we all acknowledge that architectural taste is subjective, there are some fundamentals when it comes to good design. So this is a contemporary forensic mental hospital that is advertised on the architect's website as having been designed specifically to support well-being. Here's another example of a forensic mental hospital that claims the same thing. And, you know, I won't talk to the differences between these two rooms. And I'm certainly not suggesting we can compare the two photographs and assume the architects were able to work with similar um, affordances, right? There would be different budgetary constraints, different procurement models, different contractual expectation about the care being delivered in these contexts. But what it does highlight is what for me is one of the most important questions in the design and designing for wellbeing, which is how to make sure the architecture actually does support wellbeing instead of theorizing that it will, and then, you know, hoping for the best. So the conclusion I've come to across all of these projects is that a value-led approach can be incredibly useful in supporting this process. That is, I look for the essential values that guide care, then I translate those values into architectural terms. And what I'm suggesting here is that to support well-being in care environments, ultimately, the architecture should both reflect and support the implementation of those values. Now, I have to acknowledge that this is a fairly nuanced approach because I deliberately reject the idea that a set of universal values will work in every situation, which is exactly the thing a lot of research in this field is trying to establish. But my argument, and this comes from my background in practice, and I foreshadowed it earlier, is that no building is the same as another. Sites vary, clients vary, expectations vary. Staffing models vary. The demographic of the people being cared for vary. Even the way that building is procured most probably varies. So, if we're willing to accept this truth head on, then we've probably got a much better chance of designing a building that succeeds in supporting well-being. So, I give you um, the example of new hospitals where balconies are often included as a well-being benefit. Now, quite often in Australia. These balconies get locked almost as soon as they've been constructed, and that's because hospital staff and CEOs are scared of adverse events. In short, a balcony for some is an invitation to jump off it. What this means is that we are expending budget on balconies in the hopes of eliciting these wellbeing benefits that are then inaccessible for long periods of time, potentially for the life of the building. So, you know, if we're more honest about the potential use and the constraints around that use, then maybe those wellbeing benefits could be better sought elsewhere by directing that money into other areas. I do have to acknowledge the reverse is true. I have met some hospital CEOs who are dedicated to finding ways to managing the risks associated with accessible balconies. But this illustrates why it is so important to understand contributions to wellbeing in the context of the people and the facility they are being provided for, because one size does not fit all. So when I'm approaching a research project, I'm always asking the same question. What is at the heart of the experience that the carers or the organization wants to provide? So for projects like the Melbourne Children's Hospice, where it's a small organisation with a clear and coherent vision, that's not too difficult to question. But for something like a forensic mental hospital or a palliative care ward, where the values of a specific group may not be in sync with the broader organisation or with other groups within that organisation, this becomes far more difficult. And that's when you need to be using the model of care as as a touchstone to come back to. So in palliative care, for example, that model of care is a set of values around helping a patient to die healed. And that includes ensuring that patients feel at home, that they have sensory access to nature, and that they and their families have the space and time to come to terms with death in a way that honors the patient as an individual. This can sit directly at odds with the values of a large um, hospital right Um, particularly a large acute hospital within these wards uh, within which these wards might be located so you know a large acute hospital might be focusing um, almost across the board on safe and efficient treatment that is caring patients and sending them home as quickly as possible so when the design of these facilities is being briefed you know there are two quite opposing approaches to patient care when it comes to designing for mental health Um, here's a snapshot of how that model of care maps to the spaces most relevant to support it within the context of a forensic mental hospital setting. And there should be five aspects to this model of care, but I could only fit three on the slide. And I'll just talk to those first two. So the first is prioritizing privacy and dignity, which is relevant to the design of bedrooms, bathrooms, relaxation and de-escalation spaces. Now, the difficulty with this is that in a forensic mental hospital, safe supervision is a must, and balancing that supervision with the provision of privacy and dignity is an incredibly difficult thing to do. The second treatment value is that each patient should be provided with the least restrictive environment possible relative to the level of risk they present to themselves or others. So in a forensic environment, you'll have some patients that, present a high safety risk and others that don't. We need hospital layouts that allow these patients whose behavior is predictable and reliable to have access to a variety of social and recreation spaces and the independence to move between those while simultaneously restricting movement of those patients who do present a danger. So shifting typologies then, the project undertaken with very special kids, the Melbourne Children's Hospice, provides a great example of how such a value system might influence the resulting design outcome. So VSK provides end-of-life care and respite for children with life-limiting illnesses. And to a large extent, the benefit of that respite is aimed at the parents. So to put you in the picture as to why this is the case, Many of the children who stay at VSK have super complex health needs. So some will need to be physically turned over in bed every two to three hours during the night, every night of the year. So providing respite gives those parents a chance to to recharge. So what we learned from speaking with staff is that there is a nested value system in place at VSK. And it's worth acknowledging that This isn't just a demanding job, right? There are days where this job is literally heartbreaking. And the nursing team at VSK are the most extraordinary group of people I've come across. But to be able to sustain staff in that caring role over time, they need to feel a deep sense of purpose and fulfilment. Now, that rests on the knowledge that the care they provide enables parents to to feel restored and reassured. And for parents to feel that way patients need to feel safe and engaged. Now once we figured that out we were able to map those values to a series of spaces and architectural features that could support staff to deliver the care that they wanted to deliver. So here's that mapping exercise and some of these seem pretty unexciting you know fixing the problems with overheating from solar gain installing a new medication room that's fit for purpose. This would allow staff to, to put lines in so they don't have to transfer children back to an acute hospital for that minor procedure. But other things were far more interesting from a well-being perspective. The inclusion of a soft playroom for kids with ADHD. So many of the children at VSK had mobility issues and a wheelchair bound, but there are other patients who are more mobile but not necessarily with a, a normal level of coordination and body awareness. And you know their bodies are a lot uh, more vulnerable, I guess, for want of a better term. So they are liable to do themselves serious damage if they run into furniture or other children or fall over on hard ground. So a soft playroom where every surface is padded represents pretty much the most fun it would be possible for these children to have unattended uh, and obviously, with with visual attendance but but not having to be held up or or sort of touched the whole time. So this idea came from the staff and in terms of well-being investment, um, that's a pretty huge idea. So once we've mapped those, the architects could start the process of understanding what the right architectural response for VSK should be, what qualities or atmosphere should each space have What kinds of behaviors and activities should those spaces allow or encourage? And what are the optimum spatial proximities for maintaining the strong sense of community and um, helping staff to maintain safe supervision? So I've covered a number of ideas today and not necessarily in a great deal of depth, um, but an attempt to sum up where I've arrived at and at the risk of adding yet another idea to this lecture. It's the question of, Where to next? So for me, some of the most interesting aspects of this research have been the ways that architects bridge the gap between a client brief, the design evidence that is available, which is often patchy at best, and a built solution, which is sometimes far more innovative than anything we've seen built before or alluded to in the literature. Going forward then, and still with a view to the ways that building better environments can support well-being, My current interest is in the ways that evidence-based design research and research-informed design are transforming architectural practice. So what I've seen through my research is that it's not enough to simply create evidence for good design if we don't understand the ways that evidence is being used and the enduring obstacles to successfully translating that research into a built outcome. To explain that, I'll finish on the example of this project. So, one of the big, biggest obstacles in the redevelopment of this hospital was the need to increase bed numbers, but to remain on its current site. So, to do that, a multi story building was required. And that's actually quite a confronting thing in terms of staff safety relative to the daily practicalities of moving sometimes quite unpredictable patients around the site. In the case of a multi story building, um, that's moving patients through lifts and stairwells, where there is a heightened perception of of danger for staff. So that concern had been a sticking point for this project across several feasibility studies in several years, however not finding a way to solve that problem would mean shifting this hospital to a more remote rural location, which brings its own set of problems um, for staff recruitment and retention and for collaboration with other healthcare providers, including major hospitals. So there's a number of emergency departments very close to this site, and you simply wouldn't get that in a rural location. But more importantly, and perhaps most importantly, I suggest, is that because this hospital had occupied its site for several decades, an exceptionally tolerant community had grown up around it. This means that a large number of the patients are extended day leave, to go out into the community during the day and then to come back at night. Um, and that's quite quite extraordinary in this day and age in the context of a forensic mental hospital. So um, this also obviously helps with the process of, of reintegrating patients into the community after what can sometimes be years long hospital stays. So if you were to relocate the, this hospital, that context of tolerance that has taken decades to build up will be lost and, and that will come at a huge cost to the patient quality of life. So all of this hinged on managing the risks of multi-story planning for a forensic mental hospital, yet this had been done before in the UK and the US. So bringing a research process to this feasibility study meant we could draw on the expertise of architects who had successfully done this before. And what that did was effectively manage that risk. So as one of the government representatives we worked with told us, The fact that the research was being done created enough of a buzz for many of the decision makers to know, okay, well this has been looked at, this is a risk for the project that we no longer need to worry about, we're more confident in funding it. Research, architects, procurement processes, and evidence-based design and its allied fields, these three things are often treated as independent But the common thread through my research is the acknowledgement that this is an ecosystem of sorts that needs to be better understood if we are to really succeed in creating environments that support well-being. Thank you.
0: Rebecca, that was absolutely uh, fantastic, uh, really fascinating. Um, I think the way you took us through the various settings, the various age groups, um, introducing that value-led approach, which I think is is really important, um, talking about the model of care um, and bringing us really importantly to this kind of evidence-based piece at the end, which is kind of things going full circle in a way from where you started with the kind of, you know, the like 19th and 20th century approach um, um, to this. Um, Rebecca, thank you so much. It's been absolutely fantastic, really engaging, listening to your fantastic research and all the amazing examples. I think we have so much to learn. this will be available as a, as a podcast. Um, so you can at least get the text bit. bit. I'm looking forward to talking to you again. Um, thanks to everybody for, for attending in person and also to um, everybody attending online. So, Rebecca, thanks very much. Thanks, guys.
1: Thank you.